thing that we do from time to time that is, that is wonderful, a privilege, and also very sad. Um, living in Banff is awesome, except the reality is that we lose people from time to time and often. And one of our faithful, long-term serving people here in the church is headed off. And Bev, who just played piano, I'm going to get you to come up for a second. This is Bev's last Sunday with us. Um, funny, so Bev and I share a, a common hometown and a lot of the same people that we know. And so when I moved, or when we were candidating here, actually, Bev came up and wanted to talk to me about, you know, the Mennonite Mecca of the world. And, and, and we chatted about some things. And she mentioned that, that Banff is one of these things. So Bev moved to Banff uh, for one year, 33 years ago. And, uh, and as far as I understand, has been threatening gently to maybe go back to Steinbeck for years. And, and just listening, what, what is God calling of, of her right now? And so she is headed back for one year. <laughs> Whatever she decides beyond that is up to her. No, we are, we are so privileged to have you with us, Bev, and it's a privilege to play with you on Sundays and, and just to worship together. And so we just want to send a, we just want to do a prayer of blessing over Bev as she heads back uh, to Steinbeck and, and back to some family. And uh, I, I told her this morning, I think you've lived here longer than you ever did in Steinbeck. And so it's not really going home. It's kind of going to your second home again. So let's just pray for Bev. And as, as she travels and gets ready to go, we just want to bless her. So God, thank you for Bev, for her love for you, for her service to you, for the talents that you have given her and the ways in which she has plugged into this church over the many years. We are so grateful uh, for her, for her friendship, and we just pray that as she embarks on this next chapter of life, this, this next one-year plan, that you know far beyond what she does. And so we pray that she would be able to trust you in these steps that she is taking, that she would know that as she goes back, she's not as much saying goodbye to us as, as see you later. We all know that we will be together again one day, regardless of whether she comes back here or we all meet in eternity. And so we praise your name for that. Would you be at work in uh, Bev's next steps as she heads back, as she looks for work, as she plans out uh, whatever her desires are? And we pray that that would match with what your desires for her are, that you would just guide and direct and lead her. As she drives back, we pray for safety on the roads. We pray that you would just be at work uh, in the whole journey and God, we pray that you would bless her for this step of faithfulness to do, what you, to do what she believes you are calling her to do. God, we are so grateful for her. Go with her in this next season. Amen. Thank you, Bev. All right, so 1 Corinthians 14. We've been here for a few weeks. Um, I lost my sermon. How important could that be, right? Hey, there it is. Oh, that made me nervous for a second. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. We've been here for a few weeks dealing with this. And, uh, and this is one of those mornings where there's a word that we need to remember. And I've said it lots, and, and I'll continue saying it lots, but especially this morning, this is a great example of that, is when we read in Scripture, it's very easy if we just read like five verses isolated that we can lose sight of what's happening. 
and we can make the text say things that it isn't intending to say because we've lost sight of what? Context. And so we need to remind ourselves, we need to take a step back here, and we're going to look at really, really briefly the overview of 1 Corinthians, and then specifically this block of teaching from 11 to 14, which is one kind of idea. Because at the end of 14 here, when we read through these verses, 26 to 40, when we read through them, there's going to be a few verses in there where you're going to not be real pleased for a moment. Because it sounds like it's saying some pretty harsh and inconsistent things with the rest of the Bible. And so if we just take this passage and we just isolated it to this and we said, well, I'm just focusing on these, you know, 12 verses or whatever it may be, is we can lose sight and we can misinterpret it very easily. So that's why we need to step back. And and sometimes it's easier when it's a letter that's only three chapters long. And we can read it in five minutes and we can read the whole thing. And then we read it again and we read it again. And it can be easier to grasp this. A longer letter like this, and especially with the way that we've done it, is we started at the end of December, went all the way till summer, took a break for summer and jumped back in. And so the text in chapter 11 that this is paired with has been a few months since we've looked at it. And so we've all probably forgotten. What is that context? What does it look like? What does it mean? And so this is all preamble just so that you don't throw rocks at me when you hear some of these things because if they're heard only in the context in which we find them rather than the broader context of, of this letter specifically, we will probably misunderstand what's happening. So that's, that's your warning. First uh, Corinthians predominantly deals with uh, this church that is very self-absorbed. They, they do want to serve Jesus, but they want to serve Jesus a little bit on their own terms. They don't want other people to speak into their lives. They don't want to have other people tell them what they should do or how they should do it. And, and in the midst of that, they've kind of focused in on several very specific things. And in the first few chapters, Paul deals with the arrogance in their own hearts, reminding them that, that to be part of the church is a corporate thing. It's not an individual thing. And so when you are part of the church, if you are elevating yourself or trying to show how important you are or how gifted you are or whatever it may be, and there's several issues that he goes through, is you need to step back and you need to remember that everything about the corporate gathering, everything about Sunday morning in our context is about how we can honor God, how we can encourage one another and how we can proclaim the gospel. It's not about me. It's about us. And I would argue that that's probably just as relevant a message in today's world as it was to those in Corinth. It's so easy for us to, con- to get so focused only on our issues, our problems, our stresses, our whatever it might be. And we can lose sight of everything. And, and one of the beautiful things about the Bible is the Bible gives us a sense of perspective often. When we're reading through and we're feeling overwhelmed by the struggles and the hurts that we have and we read about what the disciples endured or what Paul endured or what the church in Corinth was going through and some of the difficulties that they were facing, sometimes that can rock our world a little bit and we can remind ourselves, I'm not the only one who's going through difficulty. But everyone in the world is going through difficulty. That doesn't mean that your problems don't matter in comparison to somebody else's. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is it takes us from being I'm the only one struggling. To we all struggle together. And when we struggle together and when we pray for one another, when we help one another, when we serve one another, we can come through those things far more effectively than if we think, I will figure this out. 
I have the answers. I'll, what, no matter how much work it takes, I'll do it, and I don't want to include anybody else. That, that never works, at least not very effectively. And so Paul has dealt with several difficulties, and, and we're going to read these verses together now. Uh, and then I'll explain a little bit more of the context and what we're focusing on. The first half of our text, Paul's going to talk about being self-controlled. And the second half, Paul's going to talk about this word that we looked at in chapter 11, about submission and what that means. So let's read together. 26 to 40, chapter 14. It says this. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue... Let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be, sorry, and all be encouraged and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of order. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Don't throw anything. We're going to deal with that. If there is anything they should desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that these things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So the first half of this verse, we've been dealing with tongues and prophecy over the last couple of weeks. And Paul's um, conclusion to all of it is very simply this, is if it does not edify the church, then it does not belong in corporate worship. So if you cannot be built up and if you cannot understand what's being said, then it has no value in the context of the worship gathering. And so what historians and, and scholars tell us is this idea of tongues, it's, it's just as mysterious kind of to us today as it was to them in some senses. And so what is mysterious, we often elevate to think, man, that's really, really cool. That's some, like, that's some kind of mark of some kind of spiritual maturity. And that's what was happening in the church in Corinth. They were desiring this one gift over all the others because it came with this sense of, they believed it, man, it makes me look so spiritual. It makes me look so mature. It makes others look at me and go, wow, that person, like that's what I wanted to aspire to. And Paul argues, no, please, please don't desire that. Desire a gift like prophecy where it encourages and builds up everyone. And then he talks further about tongues and he says, tongues are good. And he says that in this passage as well. Don't forbid speaking in tongues. But he encourages it saying, if it's not interpreted for the whole body, then it has no value to the body. And so he's been mapping this out for us over the last number of weeks uh, dealing with some of the confusion that happens. But as we've kind of finished the explanation of what it is and, and what it looks like, then he says, now, now what does it look like in the context of your worship gathering? What should, in our case, Sunday mornings look like? 
Now, he is not uh, being so specific as to give us a holy order of service, right? Like, have you ever been in a church where you don't dare touch that order of service? Like, this is how we do it. And if you, if you wiggle something out of the wrong, it's not good. That's not the point. The point isn't you do this and then you do this and this and this and this in every Sunday morning. What Paul's saying is he's trying to create order in a place where there was chaos. Again, Paul's focuses are primarily the edification of the saints. And then he says at the end of last week's text, he talks about there are people that may come in that want to know about God, but they can't hear about him because they can't understand a thing that's happening because it's just pure chaos in your church. And how is that then helping that person come to faith in Jesus? It's not. And so Paul's concern, well, well, he says it in verse 26. What then shall we say about this? Verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. That's the overall theme of this, is that if an outsider, if anybody comes in, whether they're a believer who's visiting, whether it's someone who attends this church, or whether it's somebody who knows nothing about faith, about spiritual things, but just walked in the door for the... And for a reason they maybe don't even know, is if it's not done decently and in order, it's not edifying to one another. And that is terribly concerning to Paul. So, depending on your personality, that might either bring you great comfort or you might be a little bit disappointed. You might think, oh good, there's no room for chaos and confusion and everything, I won't get, you know, bothered by all the uncertainty. It'll, it'll have a pattern, it'll have structure. On the other end, you might think, well, that leaves no room for spontaneity. And, and that doesn't seem to be good because shouldn't we, shouldn't we feel God's presence and want to engage in that? And so what Paul's saying is, is not one extreme versus the other, but that either extreme actually is unhelpful. So whether you, are, whether you like order or whether you like chaos— is there's a little bit of both in here that is good. I shouldn't say there's a little bit of chaos. There, there's spontaneity, but not chaos. So Paul starts by saying that uh, when you come to the gathering, that each one has something to offer. So that's literally saying each one of you, God has given a spiritual gift to for the edification of the others, and he wants to use you to encourage one another. His point is not that every single person gets up and uses their gift every single time when they gather together. But his point is that every single person has the same value, the same dignity, and the same worth. So that they can share what gift they have been given for the building up of one another. Paul continues to use tongues and prophecy as examples within the worship gathering, but he puts limits on both of them. And if you notice, this is really interesting because he's been kind of dichotomizing these two things, tongues over here, prophecy over here. You shouldn't want this one, but you should want this one. But again, it's a context. He's talking about the worship gathering. But then he puts limits on both of them and the limits are the same. As he says, if you're going to speak in tongues, that's fine, but there's a way to do it. Let, let two or three at most Speak and, and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if no one is there to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. That's the limits that he puts on tongues. But then prophets, he actually says the same thing. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is said. If revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. Basically says the exact same thing is 
This isn't about everyone getting up and everyone sharing all at the same time, but this is about a little bit. One person gets up and has something to share that we listen, that we would be encouraged. If a tongue can't be interpreted, then it shouldn't be used. Prophets, if if you all start speaking together all at the same time, you shouldn't do it. And so he's giving the same limits on both, all about order. And he says, uh, each should speak one at a time and then the others will weigh what is said. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. What does that mean? But this text, this first bit, is all about self-control. It's all about order rather than chaos. So Donald Pryor writes it this way. This is just a simple little sentence that I think is great. He says, the person with the gift, whatever the gift is, can choose either to use it or to not use it, can choose to use it in private or in public, can choose to keep it private and silent, even in public. No matter What your gift is, is God has given it to you for the edification of one another, and so you are in control of how you use that gift. That's what he's saying. And you may have experiences uh, that you've been in a church where that has maybe not been the case, and where things get a little bit wild, a little bit crazy, and people say something, well, I cannot help but do this and say this. Well, Paul says you actually can that you remember just last week he talked about engaging your mind and your spirit together as you worship that you can't just do one that they both need to be present there is god has gifted you for a certain reason but that you are in control of that so you are not overwhelmed to a place where i just have to say this because usually when those things happen it's done with this sense of so you can't question me because this is from the spirit That actually goes against what Scripture says here because it says the others will weigh what is said. Again, we'll clarify that in a moment. Uh, Leon Morris puts it this way. He says, If the prophets had no control over their spirits, any prospect of of an orderly assembly would vanish. Paul sees the character of God as a guarantee against such disorder. God, because he is the kind of God he is, will produce peace, not disorder. That's a great sentence found one other commentator who wrote it this way. This is a little bit more poignantly. He says this, Paul wants their behavior to reflect the character of God. Disorderly, self-centered worship fails to glorify the God of order and of peace. Again, back to Paul's two main points. In the corporate worship setting, we should exist to use our gifts so that we can edify one another. And if they can't hear me or they can't understand me, then how is it helpful? It's not. Secondly, if a non-believer comes in and they see chaos happening, as he said in the last text, is they're going to say, you're all crazy. You're out of your mind. I don't understand. I'm out of here. Let's go back to this idea of the others will weigh what is said. So Paul says the prophet should speak Sorry, the prophet who speaks should realize that he or she isn't the only person there to use their gifts to edify others. In other words, let's say it this way, is you are no more or less important than anybody else here this morning. That's hugely important that we recognize that. It's just because you've been a Christian for 20 years or two years doesn't mean that somehow you have more value. You may be more mature, but that's not even a guarantee necessarily. We're all the same in that regard is God wants to use each one of us. So if you feel God has something that that he wants you to share, then go ahead and share that, not uncontrollably, but in order. 
And so then when you say it, it actually says that other, the others can evaluate what is said. So simply this, is, is there's, some con, there's some debate amongst what this means. Some interpret this to mean that when a prophet speaks in a church that the other prophets weigh what is said, whether to give validity or not validity to that. I think when we have that kind of interpretation, we're making the text say something it doesn't say. The others will weigh what is said. Who are the others? He's not only talking about one group of people. He is using two examples of those with tongues or those with prophecy, but he continues on throughout these chapters in other gifts, in other areas, and he talks earlier about those who have discernment. So if you're going to say that one group of people would weigh what is said, wouldn't it be those who are more discerning? So it feels like that's kind of a counterproductive argument. What it seems to be, if you just read 11, 12, 13, and 14, which is all about the corporate gathering, it seems very clear that when a prophet comes and speaks something, that everyone else there weighs what is said and determines, is this true? Is this right? That means that you have an active part to play in every part of church service. That your mind is engaged. And when you hear something spoken, you go, is this true? Is this in accordance with what the Bible says? Is, is, this a, is this a bad interpretation? How should we figure this out? Well, here's some good questions to ask. Michael Green wrote these, uh, he calls it a criteria for understanding these things. He says this, some of the criteria should be this. Does it glorify God? Is it in accordance with the scripture? Does it build up the church? Is it spoken in love? Excuse me. Does the speaker submit to judgment by others? Is the speaker in control of himself? Does the speaker go on too long? Probably ignore that one, please. Is the speaker demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit in his life? If this is true, then this is how we determine whether it has validity. We looked at this last week, but in 2 Thessalonians, it says to test prophecies. And these are the ways in which we do that. These are the ways in which we Determine, is this consistent with God's character and what his revealed word says to us or isn't? In other words, if I come up before you and, and I'm living a life that has nothing to do with God and then I claim that God is working in me in amazing ways that, that you couldn't possibly understand, you should probably just stop listening to what I'm saying. Not to say that you have to be perfect. Not at all. That's not what scripture teaches. But what it does teach us is that we mature towards Christ-likeness. And there's, there's moments of ups and downs of that. There's seasons where we grow maybe quite effectively. And then there's seasons where we doubt. And there's seasons where we turn and we're not sure. There's a blip in the, in the journey. And we need the church then to build us back up. And so when we ask these questions, we're not asking, is the person perfect? We're asking, are they living in a life in submission to God? Why is that important? Well, because the next section is all about submission. Again, there's a lot of debate on these verses. Uh, the ESV has chapter, or, sorry, verse 33 as two different paragraphs. So halfway through the sentence, it splits it up and puts a new thought. Some of the other translations uh, have verse 33 all as the end of a paragraph and then verse 34 as a new paragraph. And so even interpreters aren't exactly certain based on the Greek grammatical context here of, of where this should flow. And there's great reasons for both when you read them through. And so I don't think it's as crucial that we determine that as much. I simply say that so that if you're sitting next to your spouse and you're both reading and you have a different translation, you go, hang on, these are, there's a different paragraph here. This might be a different thought. I think it's trying to say the same thing no matter what. 
And this is where uh, our context becomes crucially important. So I'm going to remind you back into, this is back into May now, uh, somewhere near the middle of May. And you can go back online if you want to listen to that sermon. Uh, It's chapter 11, starting at uh, verse 2 to 16 that is corresponding to this one. But specifically, chapters 11 to 14, in their context as a whole, this block of teaching is where we need to seek kind of harmony in what we're reading. Because if you read it just as a first glance, it sounds like what Paul's saying is that women cannot speak in church and they should be silent. But in chapter 11, Paul says that women will pray and will prophesy in church. So is Paul going against what he has just said and and creating some kind of inconsistency? And that's often uh, where people will try and say, look, the Bible isn't, isn't consistent. It has contradictions in it. But, but I think as we study through this section that the only contradiction is there if we ignore 11 and we interpret 14 solely based on itself and not based on 11, 12, 13, and 14 together. So back in chapter 11, Paul talks about head coverings. And, and he says that women uh, can pray and prophesy, but there's an order to that, that their heads should be covered. Now, we talked about some of the cultural context to that, which is different than our own. But the basic premise was simply this, is Paul was speaking directly to a group of wives who were not honoring their husbands in the corporate gathering. And by doing that, they were not honoring God. That, that much was simple in chapter 11. And it seems to be, when you look into the original language and when you kind of wrestle through some of the grammar and everything, it seems to be what Paul is doing is he's going back to that same issue to deal with the same group of women and specifically the Greek word is wives here. The wives should keep silent churches for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission. And again, we don't like that word submission. But chapter 15 is all gonna be about the submission that Christ showed to his father by going to the cross. So is submission bad or wrong? I would argue that submission actually shows the greatest act of love that's ever existed in the world. Or Jesus is pleading with his father in the garden, if there's no other way, then may it be your will, not mine. Right? That's, submission is actually a sign of strength when you are capable of saying, no, I don't want to, but for the sake of somebody else, you will say, I will do it anyway. And that can actually be one of the hardest things for all of us to do. When you become a parent, you learn this a lot more because sometimes you just want to discipline your kids so that they, they did something wrong and they're going to learn doesn't really work that way, does it, parents? You can try all you want. If you don't discipline with love and with a proper motive behind it, it never is effective. And so even though you have the power to be like, you go to your room for the next six years, maybe you don't have quite that much power, but you give some kind of, you know, overarching do this, you have that control, you could exercise your authority, but you submit to Christ who goes, no, my, so in this case, my son Yes, he is my son, but he belongs to Jesus first. So I need to submit to parenting the way that God has called me to, not the way that I inherently want to, because I'm wrong a lot of the time. And so in this context, what seems to be clear, and I'm just going to read to you from what uh, 
Richard Pratt writes, because he writes this very well. He says, in this context, it's specific to prohibit wives from questioning their own husbands in the church. And, and it's probably a three-page thing that Pratt writes on this, where he goes into great detail, and he shows that these specific wives were usurping the authority of their husbands. Now, again, I'll clarify that in a moment. But what they were doing is their husbands would get up and give a word as Paul had told them to, and they would be ridiculed in public by their wives saying, no, you can't. That's wrong. Well, in chapter 11, we talked about this issue, that, uh, this term that, that we've translated into English as headship. And this headship responsibility is simply that God has asked men to be the spiritual leaders in their homes. That is a call from God that has nothing to do with value or equality, but a role in which God has said, this is the way I want it to be done. So men, you are called to lead your families spiritually, and wives are then called in several places. We're not talking about just this place. There's many places in Scripture. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. You see this all over the place. That doesn't mean your husband is always right, wives, just to clarify. That does not mean your husband is always right. But it does mean that God has given him a responsibility and for you to submit to him actually builds him up and strengthens him towards becoming the better husband and father that he should be. Because you are actually equipping him to do that. Husbands, you're not off the hook here either. Is there's a specific situation happening here, but I would argue that there's a much more specific situation that tends to happen in our culture where guys gather together and they're doing whatever it might be, playing hockey, and everyone talks very poorly about their wife. You are not honoring God in that moment. Your wife is a daughter of the king. And he loves her desperately and wants you to nurture and to care for and to build up. And how is talking degradingly when you're around your buddies and she's not there? How does that help? It does not. And so don't think that somehow only wives are, are, are can be in, in a problem here is all of us can be is when we don't live in submission to, then we get in trouble. So men, when you don't live in submission to the fact that God has called you to be the spiritual leader in your home, if you don't do that, then you are not living out the calling which God has given you. And that is a problem because you are now setting your family up for failure. That's not to say they will fail because that gives us way too much control when we know that's not true. When you're a parent, you know this, is you can do everything right and you can do everything wrong and yet God just magically makes things happen a certain way. Sometimes you can go, man, I'm certain I taught my child not to disrespect their teacher, but why do they do it all the time? Or on the flip side, you can be told, man, your child is so respectful and your parents go, what, really? That's surprising. God is the one at work here and we are called to be faithful to what he has called us to do. And so men were called to lead their families, to show them who Jesus is, to model what spiritual headship looks like. So in other words, when it says men love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that is do any and everything to protect and to love and to nurture your wife. Anything. If you have to give your life up for her, you are called to do that. This is not some kind of one is better than the other or one has value when one doesn't. It seems to me clear in 11, 12, 13, and 14 that Paul's dealing with a very specific situation where some wives were getting up in front of the church 
questioning their husbands in a condescending way that usurped anything that they had, made them go home and feel ashamed. And Paul is saying, that does not honor one another in the church. That does not build up one another in the church. Anything that you say should be for the building up of one another. And if you get up to make a spectacle, whether in this context or whether it's earlier when he says in tongues, if you get up and you want to preach or you want to, you want to profit, sorry, if you want to speak in tongues in some way so that the, the focus becomes on you and your spiritual maturity, Paul says you got it wrong. You're actually showing your immaturity then because it's not about you, it's about the gathering. And so in the same way, so Paul deals with self-control, first of all in the text, and then he deals with submission, and that submission is going to continue. And he goes from the specific group of women now to the entire church as a whole. And I think this is really important, but I want to give you an example of, of what we've just spoken of. In Acts chapter 18, there's these missionaries, Priscilla and Aquila, and they're going planting churches and, and teaching people about Jesus and various things. Why is this important? Well, if you go to chapter 18 of Acts, where are they? In the city of Corinth. So this is the beginnings of the church to which Paul is writing. It's Priscilla and Aquila planted, and then this man named Apollos comes in. And we talked about this lots at the beginning of the text where people were picking, saying, oh, I follow after Paul. I follow after Apollos. I follow after Peter. They were picking their own teacher and becoming groupies of that one teacher. And Paul talks about how silly that is. Well, in Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla, they begin this ministry. Apollos comes along, and he begins to teach, and it talks about how eloquent he is. But in chapter 18, there's this verse where it says that, that Priscilla and Aquila notice that in Apollos' preaching and in his teaching, it's not completely accurate. It's good, but he has some work to do. And so it actually says this, and I want to quote this, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They did not stand up in front of the gathering in the synagogue where Apollos is preaching and go, you don't have all this quite right, Apollos. You need some help. It says that they took him and privately had conversation and equipped him to build him up so that he could go out and go and do this more effectively. That's the context of what's happening here. Why is that so important? As an example, I think only because it shows us the situation that existed in Corinth, right from the beginning. A very polytheistic nation, a very multicultural, it was just a a place where people from all over the world came. You had all kinds of different cultures gathering together and they were struggling with how should we as a church live in this very unique situation? And that's what the whole letter is about. Paul trying to explain that. And we are all a byproduct of the culture in which we live in and the Corinthians were struggling with and we talked about this earlier with things like meat sacrifice to idols. Where Paul says that idol is nothing. It has no significance over your life. But because your church is filled with people who are at varying levels in that, if you're going to cause your brother to stumble by eating that, then don't do it. Because care more about them than you do about yourself. And so a lot of what we have in Corinthians is not simply these black and white things of right, wrong, but of what is beneficial to your brother and to your sister in the Lord. How are you going to live so that they're built up? That's what this text is referring to. And so it goes into the whole church and, and not just these one group of women, but he goes back to deal with the prideful hearts of them all with some sarcasm in 36. Was it from you that the word of God came? In other words, what is he saying? You didn't hear it of your own volition, but somebody came and taught you the gospel. Somebody showed it to you. Or, or are you the only ones that it has reached? Again, they're trying to live in a in, 
complete autonomy and say, nobody has authority to speak into our lives. We're just going to do what we want to do. We were, we're going to worship how we want. And, and Paul's saying, no, as is in all the churches of the saints. He's trying to call on some consistency. Not that every church looks the same or sounds the same, that we all sing the same songs and all the same tempos. It's not what he's getting at. But he's saying there's got to be order and consistency with how we worship the Lord and we should submit to God first and then to one another so that we can edify each other in this. And then you have these very interesting verses, 37, 38, where it seems like Paul's making some kind of a power grab here, where it's like he's trying to elevate himself at the cost of everyone else. But again, when you read through the context and when you realize what's happening, when Paul says, if you think you're a prophet or spiritual, you should acknowledge these things that I'm writing to you. Not because he, He's not saying because I planted the church, I have authority. He's saying because I've been given authority by Jesus Christ as an apostle, I am speaking to you what he wills. So this is why our interpretation of spiritual gifts, of scripture as a whole becomes so important because the apostolic authority that was given was given to the disciples and to Paul, not to us. And so Paul had authority to say this, and it seems, like he, it seems like he understands that what he is saying here is not from himself, but it's a command from the Lord. Now again, I don't know exactly what that looked like back in Paul's time, how Paul knew that he was being inspired of the Lord, but we do read lots of examples where he's on the road to Damascus and the Lord shows up to him in a very clear way. And so when we read through scripture and when we see the apostolic authority that exists is, is what Paul's trying to say is we're trying to be consistent with the message of the gospel. And if you're not going to be consistent, then you are the one that is at odds with the church or with what is true and what is right. And so you need to learn submission in all things. And so he says, if anyone does not recognize this, then he is not recognized. Then he finishes by saying, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So again, when we come together to worship, it needs to make sense. It needs to make sense to the congregation. And if, you know, the reality of, of the church in Corinth is if there were people there who couldn't understand what was happening, then God would use, and, and I think God still does this in places where he uses the gift of tongues to speak to those that don't understand, but it is then interpreted so that everyone can be benefited. Everyone is built up for the Lord. Things happen decently and in order. We are in control of how we worship God. You are not overcome with some, I, I don't have the ability to stop this. This is just going to come out. That's, that's against what the text says here. But that we can share and then we submit ourselves to judgment. The others can weigh what is said. And so my hope that is, and this is always true, is that when you go home on Sunday morning, that you don't just assume everything I said was just 100% true, as if I was Paul but that you go back to this book and you study it hard. And if you think differently than I do, then that's great. I'm fine to agree to disagree on some of these things. As long as your interpretation comes from studying what Scripture says. And so everything should send us back into Scripture so that we can weigh what is said and we can see, is this true? Does it build one another up? Simply, let's think of the gathering as this the first thing we ought to do is bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ when we worship. 
The second thing is that we build one another up and we encourage one another and that we can encourage one another to use the gifts that God has given us. And then third, that the gospel is declared that Jesus is the Christ, that in him alone do we find salvation, that it is because of his death and resurrection on the cross that we have life. Those three things need to happen all the time. Orderly and decent. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning, for, for this text, for some, some of these difficult verses, and help us to always, whenever we read something that, that seems inconsistent or seems that it can't be true, help us to go back to the context in which it's found, not just five verses before and five verses after, but the whole book that we find that in. May we be willing to do the work and the research to see, am I just misunderstanding this? Help us to really desire to learn scripture, that we would see that it is one beautiful unified story leading to Jesus and that it helps us to know how we ought to live in the world that we find ourselves today. And so God, I pray for each one who is here. God, you love them desperately. You have created them. You have gifted them uniquely. I pray that they would become comfortable and understand what those gifts are, that they might use them to build one another up. And that doesn't only mean when the whole corporate assembly happens on Sunday mornings, but that as we minister and as we disciple one another, that we use our gifts to build one another up. So God, I pray for the courage to do that. I pray that we would always do everything with the other's in mind and not our own selfish desires, but that we would consider others more important than ourselves, as Scripture says. God, we pray that as we worship you on Sunday mornings corporately, that you would receive honor and glory that you're due, that we would be built up and that others that maybe don't know who you are, that this message of salvation and who Jesus is, that it would go out to the ends of the world, that people would know that Jesus is the Messiah. God, would you be with us in these coming days and weeks? Give us the strength we need. Give us the courage we need. Give us the words we need to say. Would you be at work in showing us who we need to talk to and when? And would we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit in all these things? God, we are grateful for all that you do, for who you are. Go with us this morning. Amen. Thank you again for joining us. If you are visiting, it's our pleasure to have you. If you have any questions, you can find us at the back. Uh, and, and we just hope you have a wonderful week and encourage one another. Bye-bye.